Welcome to Pete Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. In this episode, we're going to talk about acne. As a podcast, I usually try to stay away from dermatology, but I'm pretty sure we all have a good idea of what acne looks like. More than 70% of teenagers have at least some acne, and studies show it can be common as early as 9 to 10 years old. Still, if you need some visuals, you can head over to our new website at pedsoup.com, P-D-S-S-O-U-P. We'll start out with exactly what acne is. First, I should specify that we're talking about acne vulgaris, which is the everyday kind of acne most people experience at least a little bit of as adolescents. There are a lot of other conditions that are described as some kind of acne. Acne cosmetica, acne fulminans, acne conglobata, but we won't get into those here. There are four major factors that contribute to acne formation. Sebaceous hyperplasia, altered follicular growth, bacterial colonization, and inflammatory response. Classic acne lesions develop when hair follicles and pores get clogged with dead skin cells, oil, dirt, and anything else on the skin that's small enough to get inside. Adolescence is a prime time for acne to develop because the surge in androgens that comes with puberty ramps up production of all the things that can clog a follicle. The clog alone can be enough to cause an inflammatory response, but cutobacterium acnes, also known as propionobacterium acnes, is a bacteria that lives in the pores and follicles and can make acne worse. Normally, the bacteria is there in barely detectable numbers, but a clogged follicle gives them an extra steady supply of food. From there, the bacteria multiply and the proteins they produce add to what's clogging the follicle to give even more potential antigens for the immune system to respond to and trigger inflammation. Once they start to develop, acne lesions can take a few different forms. Comedonal acne is primarily made up of comedones, small bumps around clogged follicles. Closed comedones are usually called whiteheads, while open comedones are the blackheads we all know and love. Acne is classified as inflammatory acne when the skin starts to develop erythematous papules, nodules, or cystic lesions, more like the angry red pimples that most of us associate with acne. Mixed acne, which makes up a majority of cases, has both comedones and inflammatory lesions. Acne severity can be evaluated based on the number and type of lesions and the amount of skin involved, but it's all a pretty subjective scale. In any case, it's important to remember that the impact on a patient's quality of life does not necessarily correlate with the clinical severity of their acne. For patients with acne, treatment is aimed at controlling those four factors we mentioned, sebaceous hyperplasia, altered follicular growth, bacterial colonization, and inflammatory response. Before starting any kind of treatment, it's important to talk to your patients and their families about expectations. Nothing is going to make their acne disappear overnight, and there's a good chance they'll still have at least a few comedones and pimples no matter what they use. Once everyone is on the same page, the general idea is to use the least aggressive, effective regimen for each patient. So let's work our way up the treatment ladder. The most basic thing you can do to keep acne under control is wash your face. It really only impacts one factor in acne development by removing extra dirt, oil, and other things that can clog follicles, But for some lucky people, that's enough. Along the same lines, I should also mention that wearing makeup won't automatically make acne worse. It makes sense to think that putting something on your face might clog up follicles, but as long as it's labeled non-comedogenic, it shouldn't cause any trouble. You should also tell your patients not to pop pimples or blackheads by themselves. 
The official recommendation is that only a dermatologist should do it because it increases the risk of scarring, infection, and other damage to the skin. That said, I couldn't find much in the literature to back up that recommendation. Although full disclosure, as much as I tried, I could not figure out how pimple popping would be phrased in the title of a journal article. The best I could do was a case report from 2011 of a man who had a stroke when he ruptured a carotid artery plaque while he was squeezing a pimple on his neck, which isn't exactly applicable to a pediatric population. Anyone who claims they've never popped a pimple is probably lying, and we all seem to be surviving, but the official word from dermatologists is to keep your hands off your face. Getting into medications, topical salicylic acid products are popular and available over-the-counter. There are a few explanations for how they work. Everyone seems to agree they cause some superficial skin peeling to remove microcomedones, but they might also have some impact on suppressing the inflammatory response. The evidence for their efficacy isn't quite as strong as other options, but it's all about what works for the patient. The next step is benzoyl peroxide, which is still over-the-counter, at least in lower concentrations. Benzoyl peroxide is the most well-studied acne therapy around and also one of the most effective. It's a lipophilic molecule, so it can get into the oil that's backed up in the follicle, and once it's there, it kills bacteria through oxidation without leading to bacterial resistance. It also has comedolytic and anti-inflammatory properties, so if you're keeping track, that makes three out of four acne contributors that it impacts. After benzoyl peroxide come the topical retinoids. Retinol, tretinoin, and adapalene are three of the most common. Low concentration formulas can be found over the counter, but beyond that you do need a prescription. All the retinoids are vitamin A derivatives and work by decreasing skin cell sloughing and the number of precursor lesions, and some versions also have anti-inflammatory properties. This is the step on the treatment ladder where side effects start to become more of an issue, with burning, stinging, dryness, and scaling all being pretty common, but manageable if you use the lowest effective strength in a facial moisturizer. Next up are antimicrobials, which can be given topically or orally and work by decreasing bacterial colonization and inflammation. Clindamycin, tetracycline, minocycline, and erythromycin are all commonly used, but there is documentation of increasing erythromycin resistance. The main thing to remember with antibiotics for acne, whether oral or topical, is that they should always be used in combination with another agent, typically benzoyl peroxide, to improve efficacy and decrease bacterial resistance. Topical dapsone is one of the newer antimicrobial agents and can actually be used as monotherapy. It has antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory effects, and in trials it showed a statistically significant reduction in lesions that was evident as soon as four weeks after starting treatment. Best of all, it's particularly effective for inflammatory acne, which can often be tough to treat. It's an oxidizing agent, so be careful if your patient has a history of G6PD deficiency or any other disorder that makes them more susceptible to oxidative stress. There's also a risk of systemic absorption leading to methemoglobinemia. There are a few case reports out there mostly associated with misuse or overexposure, one of which I happen to help write up. So be sure your patients understand how important it is to use the medication as prescribed. The top of the acne treatment ladder is oral isotretinoin. It's a systemic retinoid that targets all the major contributing factors in acne and has great results. So why don't we start with oral isotretinoin? The side effects, of course. Dry skin, chapped lips, dry eyes, and myalgias are the most common, but it can also cause anemia, thrombocytopenia, and elevations in triglycerides and liver enzymes. On top of that, 
there's some spotty evidence of associations with bone abnormalities, inflammatory bowel disease, and mood disorders. The biggest risk is in pregnant women, with a 20-35% to risk of congenital defects in kids exposed in utero. Deciding how to treat acne is pretty similar to treating asthma. You choose your first-line treatment based on the severity, then adjust as you go along, verifying that the patient is using everything correctly before stepping up your treatment. For mild acne, the AAP recommends starting with topical benzoyl peroxide or retinoid monotherapy and moving to combination therapy if there isn't enough improvement. In moderate acne, you start with topical combination therapy, then change the concentration or add an oral or topical antibiotic if you need to do more. Finally, for severe cases, the recommendation is to start with an oral antibiotic, topical retinoid, and topical benzoyl peroxide. If none of that works, it's time to think about isotretinoin. That's all for our episode on acne. The main thing to remember is to start low and step up your treatment as needed. Benzoyl peroxide is almost always a good answer because it's safe, cheap, and effective, and you can move your way through the topical retinoids and antimicrobials all the way up to isotretinoin. As always, if things aren't going as planned, keep an open mind about what else the lesions could be and don't be afraid to call dermatology for some help. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. If you're looking for more information, check out our website at peedsoup.com. You can also reach us by email at peedsoup at gmail.com or on Twitter at peedsoup. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peed Soup.